Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for tuning into The Animal Files, the podcast where we expose the truth, science, and spirituality of pet care and provide you with the wisdom and tools you need to raise happy and healthy companion animals. My name is Victoria, an animal spirituality facilitator and integrative energy practitioner. And my name is Miranda, an animal health technologist and pet care safety expert. Let's dive in, shall we? This week, we are going to talk about how to understand animal care and control facilities. There's a lot of information about these places that a lot of us don't know. So to better take care of the animals that live with us on this planet, it's a topic to add to your bank of knowledge. So take out your notebooks and let's get started. So what are some of the things that we need to know right off the bat? I found some interesting observations and history just around pet ownership and shelters and just the views that came around having pets over the years. And one of the first things that I learned was that during wars, insurrections, and depressions, pet ownership has frequently seen an increase. Oh, really? Well, I guess it's because we get lonely. I don't know, maybe. Maybe, or maybe it's, I, yeah, I'm not really sure uh, because in depressions, the people are losing jobs. They have a lot less money. I guess in a lot of ways, kind of like what's happened during this period of time. Yeah. But yet there was also during the pandemic, there's been an increase in pet ownership as well. And maybe it's maybe it's to help try to deal with stress. Maybe that's what it has to do with. That might be a really good point. Yeah, because we all know animals decrease our stress levels in a big way. So that maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and then... June has a tendency to be observed as adopt a cat month. I wonder if that's because all the kittens are born in <laughs> like April and May or March and April kittens are born. <laughs> yeah, like maybe that's where there just seems to be this surge or this increase of cats that come into our world. And I don't know when exactly that started to become established, it may have not become established until the shelters started coming into existence. And they easily get overfilled. Oh, yeah. They get a flood of felines. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming it has a connection with that. Okay, we, we can't take in any more cats. It's like, we need to do this push to try to get these cats adopted. Makes sense. <laughs> I was actually kind of surprised that shelters have actually existed for this long a period of time because I thought it was a fairly recent thing, you know, maybe in the last 30 years, maybe or so, or 40 years. But apparently the first shelter was established in 1869. Wow. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was established by a lady by the name of Carolyn Earl White and some other female activists. And I believe it was focused more on transport horses at the time. Okay. And then it gradually started to expand to include lost and homeless dogs. Yeah. So maybe the cat thing wasn't added until later, mm -hmm. but it would make sense because back then they were using horses for everything. Right. Fire and rescue, taxis. 
everybody had a carriage at that point. Right. Yeah. And I think horses were more working animals, solely working animals. They weren't really companion animals really at that time, mm-hmm. but they were heavily relied on. And so it was important to be able to get your horse back if yeah. they went missing for some reason. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Miss Caroline Earl White. <laughs> It also said that shelters, pounds, and animal care facilities were all essentially the same thing at that time. Now there's a little bit of a difference between them, and we will go into a little bit of those differences as we continue on. We won't be talking about shelters and rescues too much in this episode. We'll be carrying on with that at another time. Okay. So when these organizations developed and dogs started to be included. In the beginning, dog licenses were issued to raise money for these organizations. This money was meant to protect private property and provide public safety more than it was to help protect the animals. Hmm. Well, animals at that point, they weren't really companion animals. Dogs just recently came into the household and were nanny breeds. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, folks, that's where pit bulls started. They were nanny breeds. So they were taking care of kids. Hmm. That's how sweet they are. (laughs) (laughs) They're not vicious. (laughs) But a lot of those dogs, that's what their job was to keep the children protected. Outside of that, animals were just what you had to make your life better. It wasn't anything about companion or friendship or anything like that. Another piece of interesting information was that prior to the 1970s, most shelters were largely focused on humane euthanasia of the animals that were not adopted or reclaimed. Hmm. Yeah. So there's been a big shift in how we view animals. I would say. Yeah. And I'm glad for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am too. And I'm hoping it will continue going in that direction of being able to view animals as sentient beings and that they deserve respect, understanding, compassion. Me too. So this next little bit of information kind of leads into why the pound got such a bad reputation. Because a lot of people have a very negative connotation about pounds. And we hope to shift that idea and help you to realize that just because something might use the term pound, it does not have the meanings that they used to have. But initially, these shelters hired dog catchers. And they came into the existence in the 1800s and maybe earlier to pick up dogs that appeared rabid or vicious. Now it says appeared. So there may have been a lot of dogs that were maybe picked up erroneously because of misconceived perceptions about them. I'm sure of it. But unfortunately, these dog catchers were not paid very well. It was a job where they were putting themselves largely in danger a lot of the time, because, you know, if they were dealing with a rabid dog, I am sure that they didn't have much in the way of safety precautions. So there was probably a high chance of them getting bit if they did happen to be rabid. Because they were not paid very well, some of them took more of an unscrupulous route with their roles. 
instead of just doing their job like they're supposed to, some of them would actually go into people's yards and basically steal their animals. Yeah, like any any of them that were outside, they would steal their animals and claim them as being unlicensed or unfit in some way. So back then, I'm sure that there were people who lost their dogs and never saw them again, unfortunately. That's a shame. Well, you know, they had this power, they had this job and they go, you know what, we're not getting paid. And maybe unscrupulous people applied for those jobs. That's a possibility. And it was like this way of to control their neighborhoods Mm. in kind of a nefarious way. Mm hmm. And they didn't really care about the animals they were collecting. Well, I'm sure many of you have seen these cartoons or these scenarios in movies where they've got a dog catcher who's trying to get a dog. Like I remember the movie Annie and Mm. Annie came across a stray dog. You know, she didn't have any attachment to the dog really at the time, but she obviously sort of recognized, you know, the dog was harmless and shouldn't be mistreated. And so when this dog catcher wanted to try to take this dog away, she tried to protect the dog and pretended like the dog was hers. Yeah. There's also other scenarios where the dog catcher does everything they can to try to catch the dog, trying to trap them in two. So it's thankfully not like that anymore. Oh, I think there are still people out there that do that. I've, I've heard some more recent stories you know, it may not be a dog catcher, but even law enforcement, Oh, they do not so good things. They come to a house, you know, where there's something going on and next door they might have a dog and the dog's barking because people are in the house and they'll shoot the dog mm. and claim it was fear of my life. Right. When it might have been like a little Yorkie or something like that, that has never harmed anybody. Right. So I I think there's still a sliver of that. I don't know what you want to call it. Personality trait, maliciousness that kind of runs through some of these roles that are either thankless or they're put in a position of quote unquote authority. Right. And so they abuse that authority. And unfortunately, animals, especially dogs, get the brunt of that. Yeah. Unfortunately, in our world, even in other kinds of roles, there always seems to be people who do not operate from a good place. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. It's sad. And luckily, I think that is shifting, like you had said. Mm -hmm. I think there are more people that care about the animals than they used to, Mm -hmm. but it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. So let's change that, people. (laughs) (laughs) So with these dog catchers, you know, initially it was focused on picking up dogs that appeared rabid or or vicious, but then later it started to include picking up dogs without appropriate licensing verification, which they obviously tended to prefer because it was less of a safety risk for them. Mm -hmm. But then at the start of the 20th century, dogs running loose became less accepted in the cities. So then any dogs that were running loose, regardless of whether they had a license or not, were picked up and owners only had a certain amount of time in order to reclaim them. Mm. So at least now, at least in North America, well, maybe all of the first world countries, I think there is 
a concerted effort to try to return animals to their homes as much as possible. Microchipping had a big hand in that mm-hmm. because now all they had to do was scan it and they knew they had all the information. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to go searching or put up signs and saying lost dog or post it in the newspaper or something like that. All they had to do was scan the animal and see if there was a microchip. Mm-hmm. So make sure you microchip your animal, people. It's really important. Even if you don't think you're going to use it, microchip your animal because anything can happen. Mm -hmm. And animals can sometimes travel really long distances. It's not typical, but they can travel really long distances. The technology used to scan these microchips can be used anywhere. A tag might be a lot harder or a tattoo might be a lot harder to find if they end up going into another city or another province even, or state, because trying to figure out what city, state, or province the animal came from in the first place can be a real challenge. And then trying to figure out what vet that was done at. Yeah. So now we are going to give you more of an insight about what the pound is, how it came about and how it's transformed over the years. Because that was the typical term that people used. Right. Now we use softer words like shelter and rescue. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into that. Why is the pound called the pound? I found this really interesting because I was actually really curious about where that term came from. It is a Saxon word, a European word, where the terms Pundfeld and pund were used back then, and they both meant enclosure. Okay. So even though we associate the term pound with a negative image, it actually only just means that it's an enclosure. This was common in the medieval English villages. These pounds in these villages, they were used for stray sheep, pigs, and cattle. Back then, of course, they didn't have companion animals. They still probably had cats and dogs that were running loose that they would maybe give some food to and stuff, but they weren't in the home. But so these were just for the farm animals and the working animals that people had. So it worked a lot like the pounds and shelters had worked for a long period of time up until the late 1900s. And that people had a certain period of time in order to reclaim their livestock, if they didn't claim them within three weeks, then they might be brought or most likely were brought to the village market or the nearest market and sold off, which for a variety of reasons could have been slaughter, could have been for somebody else to get them as a working animal, who knows. A lot of these animals ended up in these pounds because They, I don't know, I guess somehow left the owner's farm area. And I don't know if they had much in the way of fencing and enclosures back then. Yeah, I think it was mostly just random wood posts or stone. And they weren't very tall. Mm -hmm. Now, most of these farm animals, they're, they're not going to stray if they're well taken care of, unless they're being threatened by a predator or something like that. Yeah. Especially if you have like a group of sheep or a group of cows. A horse might be a little bit different, but sheep or cattle they tend to stay with their group. Mm -hmm. So it's less likely for one to go take off, especially if they're being taken care of well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that, like you said, it's animals that feel safe 
and taken care of where they are at, they have no reason to leave because they're going to, if they leave, then they're going into the unknown that could potentially threaten their safety. Yeah. And we've mentioned how many times animals will put survival over anything. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to survive in higher numbers, they ain't going anywhere. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mind you, I guess there are some of these villagers did not have a lot in the way of animals. Like they might have like one working horse and maybe one or two cows or, (laughs) but it was probably mostly just to feed them. It wasn't to like actually make an income from them. So if their animals did end up going into one of these pounds, because there was a fine involved, they probably weren't able to reclaim them because they probably didn't have the money to do that. Mm -hmm. So we said that the term pound originated from the Saxon words pundfeld and pund, but the actual word pound was coined in the 1970s. And a pound back then was describing a government-run animal control office, as well as the building where they would house seized animals, as well as animals that were picked up as strays. So again, this was largely about mostly controlling the population of animals that were running loose. It was not about the well-being of the animals themselves. Yeah, no, it was, let's contain this. I mean, I get with dogs because dogs can be, especially if they're not taken care of and they're traumatized by humans, they can be vicious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I get that there was a need for stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness we're changing. As we said, the idea of a pound created a very negative image. And when people hear it now, they kind of freak out and they're like, I'm not going to go to a pound. I'm not going to support that. I'm not like, you know, if they see um, a dog running loose or a cat running loose, the last thing some people want to do is actually take it to quote unquote the pound because their image is, oh, well, if I take the dog or the animal to this pound, they're just going to get euthanized. Yeah. And I'm sure there are some facilities that are still like that, but the majority of them aren't. Mm. Yeah. And we'll go, go into that a little bit more, but mostly the pounds have kind of evolved into an animal care and control facility. Yes, it is still helping to control the animal population, but it's also about animal care, taking care of their well-being. These animal caregivers that work in these facilities, they want to do everything they can to either be able to connect them back with their owners or to find a loving home for them. Mm -hmm. That's their goal. Which is a good goal. And I'm glad it's there now. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that created this negative stigma, aside from the euthanasia, is that they were mainly for dog licenses, which we mentioned earlier, which was about funding the, the care of the buildings and the property and things like that. There is absolutely no medical treatment that was provided to the animals. It was only the owners who could reclaim their animals. And about 90% of people at that time didn't reclaim them. And probably there was a fine involved and they didn't think their animal was important enough to to pay the fine for it. Makes sense, but also sad. Mm -hmm. No animals were allowed to be adopted at that time. I don't know why they had that policy, but adopting was not really a thing back when these first started. And of course, we said all unclaimed animals were unfortunately euthanized. It's it's really sad that, you know, the unclaimed animals were euthanized, considering that there was about 90% of them that were 
never reclaimed. That's a large percentage. Yeah, it is. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Even nowadays, you still see this negative image reinforced in movies. I don't know if it's as strong as it was. I'm not a a big movie goer, so I don't watch a ton of movies. I think it's gotten better because the animal welfare charities like PETA and Humane Society, SPCA, they've been, they're basically making themselves known if an animal goes into a movie or a TV show or how they're being presented, they make themselves known. So that does not continue to be a part of movies and TV Mm. because it doesn't help the animals. It only hurts the animals. Right. I think that's a really good thing. I think that the more we can show that these animal care and control facilities are out there to help the animals, at least the majority of them, then the more people are going to be willing to have a positive response to them and and interact with them. I know people get frustrated with things like licenses and the potential to have to pay a fine if their animal gets loose and ends up in one of these facilities. But you know what? It's all about responsibility. When we take an animal into our home, we have decided consciously or unconsciously to take responsibility and care for this animal. So we're responsible for their well-being. We're responsible for keeping them safe. And if we're not taking the actions to prevent them from escaping out of the backyard or intentionally just allowing them to roam like with cats, you know, we're allowing them to be in harm's way because there's so many dangers out there. Yeah. And if you don't get your animals spayed or neutered, you've got even more of a problem on your hands because they're not going to look highly on you if you're allowing your intact male or your intact female to roam around your neighborhoods willy nilly. Mm -hmm. they're going to come down hard on you because you're not taking care of that animal to the best of your ability. You're not putting the safety of the animal. You don't care about whether your animal is bringing more animals into this world that are going to be suffering. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to come down hard on you. I know it can be really difficult because some of these dogs and some of these cats are escape artists, Mm -hmm. but you know what? If you know your animal's personality, you can make adjustments. Don't treat them like every other animal. Don't harm them. Don't punish them. But you just make adjustments. You do what you need to do to keep that animal safe. Mm-hmm. Keyword, safe. Right. Not controlled, not disciplined, safe. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I just about ready to get on a really big soapbox there. So I'm going to get down. I've been good lately. Have you noticed how good I've been? I haven't gotten too many. (laughs) And also with a dog, if you know you have a dog that has a tendency to escape the backyard, don't leave them out there by themselves. Be there with them. You should be there with them, even if they're not escape artists. Exactly. But there's also other things you can do. You can check your your fence and look for holes or places where they could potentially dig a hole or that they would be able to squeeze through or different things like that and take action with that. Um, You can also 
develop maybe a different kind of a fence where the fence kind of comes not just straight up, but straight up and over a little bit, because then that would make it really difficult for them to be able to jump over. Mm -hmm. There's different things you can do. If you care enough about your animal, then you can look into these things and find these different uh, alternatives. Yeah. Getting an animal is not the cheap way to get companionship. It's just like having a child. You need to spend a little bit of money and invest in the safety of your animal. So don't just get an animal because you're lonely. Get an animal if you're lonely and if you can take care of them and make sure they get their veterinary care, have proper fencing, have all the things that comes with an animal. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's like having a kid. So don't think that an animal's cheaper than a kid because they're not. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're not. And it's it's a two-way street. It's not just about what you can get from the animal. It's what you can give to the animal. Exactly. Hopefully that gives you a better understanding of what a pound is or was. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what the Animal Care and Control Facility Center is and how it's similar, but a little bit different from how the pounds used to be and how they're not the evil dungeon that people think that they are. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, you know what? That's fixed in our brains that that's what it is and it's not. So we're going to talk about how that has shifted and what you need to know. And Miranda has got a great perspective on this because her being a pet care safety expert, she's actually worked in an animal care and control facility temporarily. And she's got a lot of knowledge that you can take to heart and understand that this is where we're going. Shelter, rescue, pounds, not all doom and gloom. As we talked about prior to these animal care and control facilities developing, the unwanted and the stray animals were unfortunately disposed of in whatever methods people chose. Yeah, that's not a... Not something, not a a pretty picture, (laughs) not a pretty picture. It's not just how the pounds did it. It was also, and it still happens to some extent nowadays when people just don't want to deal responsibly with the animals. Hopefully that will eventually stop that. There will be strong enough repercussions to to fingers crossed. But as of, and I mean, this is really not that long ago, but around The year 2000, we started having these animal care and control facilities starting to develop. And at that time, they were called animal service centers. But the difference between these centers compared to the pounds is that now they were starting to evolve to actually care for these animals. It's a good thing. Yeah. Even though way back when there were people around that did actually care for animals and wanted to care for their welfare. There weren't any actual facilities to assist them with that. So it's taken quite a while for us to get to this point. But now these facilities will help to safe harbor sick, injured, lost, neglected, abused, and abandoned pets. I like that word, safe harbor. (laughs) There's also housing 
I don't know if it's in all facilities, but I know that the location that I was at, that there's housing for legal issues. So if an owner ended up going to jail or ended up in a long-term care facility or in hospital for a long period of time, then their animals could also be given safe harbor. However, Uh there is challenges with this. We're going to do a topic on this in the future. But if you do not have people in your life who will deal with your pets if something like this happens, they could end up neglected in your home. They could be left there for days, weeks, maybe even months before somebody even finds them, depending on how the situation is dealt with. And sometimes if there's no sort of legal paperwork done on them, sometimes these pets will just be taken and they may be adopted to somebody else and they may not be. So it's no guarantee that if one of these situations happens that you will actually get your animal back unless you actually do the appropriate legal paperwork, which we won't go into today. (laughs) Yeah, they could also be forgotten if somebody dies Mm -hmm. and maybe they had a cat that when they came to collect the body ran and hid and that cat can be sitting in the house and basically starving to death because nobody's there to take care of the animal. So if you are a responsible pet owner, you will reach out to family, friends, whatever, you know, make up something that says that this animal is going to go here, mm-hmm. but we'll get really detailed into that. And that is one of Miranda's cornerstones of what she really believes in the whole legal representation for these animals. Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to stick around and, and listen to one of our future episodes. Cause we are going to go into that in great detail. Mm-hmm. We don't want these animals forgotten about. Mm-hmm. We don't want them euthanize for no reason. We need to learn how to protect our pets in our absence. Absolutely. Whatever that absence is, whether it's death, whether it's jail, whether it's long-term care facility. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the quickest and easiest things that you can do, it's not completely comprehensive is you can get a decal that you can stick on your window and it tells anybody who is walking by and can actually get and gets close enough to read it. How many animals you have, what type of animals you have. If it's somebody that is connected with whatever's going on, they already know that, okay, there's, there's, there's animals associated here. What has happened to them? And they can look into if somebody's already taken them into their care or if they could be at home. And you can also have a card you can carry in your wallet too which is also yeah, really I have one idea. of those cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I need to update it, but I have one of those cards in my purse. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to feral animals and strays, and we don't tend to have feral dogs so much in North America, but we do have feral cats. These animals may not always be accepted at these shelters. You know, you have to keep in mind that these shelters have limited space. They can only take in so many animals at one time. If you bring them to the shelter, you could be turned away because if the animal does not appear to be in distress, 
this is more with cats. Typically they will take the dogs in, but not as the cats as much, at least in my experience. Here where I live, cats are allowed to roam. They've got kind of a weird bylaw around it because cats are allowed to roam. There's nothing illegal about that, but they're not allowed to go on private property. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Cat's going to go, oh, I must stick to the sidewalk. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, sorry. My little peanut gallery outburst. (laughs) That's kind of ridiculous. But as a result of communities that allow cats to roam, this can cause people who see these cats to assume that they're strays and then go and try to take these cats and bring them to these facilities. When in fact, they're actually owned and have a home. Right. So this is where... The shelters are hesitant to accept the cats that are brought to them because the shelters themselves don't have any control over the bylaws. They can only work with them as they are. So uh, unless a cat is showing signs that they're starving or that they're injured or sick in some way, most of them are going to get turned away and they're just going to be told to, to be brought back to where they were found. So that may seem harsh, but like I said, they only have so much room and there tends to be a lot more cats that are brought in than dogs. There always seems to be a greater quantity of cats in these shelters than there are dogs. Well, probably because they're roaming and they're not fixed. Yeah. They're intact. But do the shelters actually check to see if there's a microchip or is does Canada not have a huge drive to get all animals microchipped? No, they do have a a good push to get the microchipped. And yes, these facilities do have the scanners. And that's one of the first things that they will do. Right. Well, that's that's saving grace there. Yeah. But I know with the restrictions and everything that are happening, they're also not allowing a lot of people to come into these facilities. So that's also causing a restriction on accepting animals, especially cats. Some places will not allow people to come in and if they don't have the vaccine status and that too. So there's a lot of challenges that happen with that kind of at the moment. Mobile scanners. Yeah. Well, there is mobile <laughs> scanners, but there's like all this, these safety concerns and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I get it. Anyways. <laughs> They're trying at least. Mm-hmm. Try harder. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> peanut gallery again all right (laughs) most of these facilities will have accredited vets and vet techs that work in these facilities they've got fully equipped veterinary services so many of the animals that will come in well actually the intention is with all of the animals that come in and i'm assuming that this is the same throughout the different facilities if they find that the animal has not been spayed or neutered that will be one of the first things that happens. Unless they have um, medical issues or something like that, then that will get treated first. They will also microchip any animals that come in. So that's an automatic. And they also want to make sure their vaccines are up to date. So those are all the different things that they routinely will do with the animals that come in. Well, actually, I would say the exception is if they find right away that 
one of the animals belongs to an owner and they can contact that person and that person has said that they're going to come in and claim their animal, they won't automatically spay and neuter the animal at that point. They haven't come to the point yet where all animals need to be spayed or neutered unless they're registered breeding animals. Okay. Hopefully that will be a requirement down the line. Yes. Because if you're letting your registered breeding animal roam, that animal needs to be taken away from you or your registration taken away from you because you can't be sure of the purity of the breed if they have a litter. Yeah. But the, the other side of that too, was that um, there are people who are choosing not to spay or neuter their animals, particularly dogs who are not breeders and they're being allowed to not have them spayed or neutered. Oh, that's completely wrong. They have to be spayed or neutered. If you are not a registered breeder, they need to be spayed or neutered. Yeah. Unfortunately, not every jurisdiction is on board with that at this point. Oh, we got lots of work to do then. (laughs) (laughs) I will stay off my box, but I am shaking my head and rolling my eyes big time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Another service that is involved with the animal care and control services is pet licensing, which is similar to what was in the past. That's been a continuation, except that the pet licensing nowadays, it's not focused on paying for the building and the properties and stuff like that. It's also about helping to protect the animal. And it it is still about controlling the population because people are supposed to have a limit of a certain number of cats and then a certain number of dogs in their household. And they're not supposed to exceed that. It's also used by bylaw to help be able to monitor what might be going on in a person's home if there's a complaint or something like that. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of complaints that happen around barking and, well, of course, with cats roaming, cats digging in their yard or using the yard as a litter box and things like that. As a result, many people choose not to license their cats, at least the ones that allow their cats to roam because they don't want to end up with a fine. I'm really trying to keep my mouth shut here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have a cat. Sorry. (laughs) Center, center. Okay. (laughs) I am sassy today. (laughs) The location that I was at, they did have bylaw officers that work directly in that building. And I saw some of the interactions where they were dealing with the citizens. It was definitely a thankless job from what I could see, because generally the people who were coming in, the citizens that were coming in and were involved in the situation were people who were not willing to take responsibility for their own actions. And there was often lies being told, blaming others and all of that kind of stuff. And ultimately, it just ended up in them getting a fine and probably even a bigger fine because they were not cooperating. So, you know, bylaw officers are not, they're not trying to make things difficult for people. They're just trying to uphold what has been created. They didn't create it themselves. They're just trying to uphold what was created. And if you work with them and are cooperative with them, they're going to be a lot more lenient and maybe even, you know, let you off the hook for 
a fine or something like that if it's a first time thing and you know you're showing that you are willing to make changes and and do things differently a law is a law they're there for a reason sometimes it, you may not understand what the reason is but ultimately a lot of these laws are put into place to protect the animal mm -hmm. and if you're not following those laws yeah you should be those yeah yeah <laughs> you know what to say um yeah you, you should be you should be penalized you should be mm -hmm. fined and you should either have that animal taken from you uh or in extreme situations you should go to jail but those are my opinions <laughs> um <laughs> i don't waver too much from them if you <laughs> haven't already noticed <laughs> <laughs> because I don't care about the human. It's all about the animal and what's best for them. So, right. you know, if you're going to do something that's going to endanger an animal, I'm sorry, you don't get my compassion. But if you want to do everything you can to make that animal's life better, then you have all my love. So yeah, there's no, there's no gray area with me. Mm -hmm. Take care of your animals properly. Follow the law. Do what you need to do to ensure that your family can stay together and thrive. All right, anyway, so let's continue. <laughs> so not all animal care and control facilities <laughs> will do adoptions directly out of their center. The one that I was at, they partnered with rescue shelters and humane societies to do the adoptions. I think it was probably a lot to do with, it would just make it way too busy there would just be too much coming and going and that can create a lot of stress for the animals as well. So the facility I was at, the way it was set up was that they had an entrance and an exit. So you wouldn't have people coming out the same door that people were coming in. So it was helping to try to reduce the stress levels of the animals that were being dealt with, as well as trying to control the traffic of people to some extent. For the cats, they had these cubicles that were on one side of the, the lobby area. And so once the cats were scanned and the paperwork, well, yeah, generally it was like once they were scanned, they would be put into these cubicles that had like a two-way door. So then the vet techs could access them from the other side. And then they didn't have to be transported all the way through the building around a lot of other people. Interesting. But there is definitely some designated rescue shelters and humane societies that worked with them with cats, with dogs, with birds, and maybe even some of the other types of animals that were brought in there. So these rescue centers would regularly be at the center to gather the animals who were ready for adoption, because not all of the animals there are ready for adoption depending on what their circumstances are. Some of them that are in safe harbor can't be adopted or there's legal issues involved if there was like questions of abuse and stuff like that. So until that was dealt with, they couldn't be adopted. So there was partnerships going on with multiple facilities right. to help right. ensure that the animals got the best care and the people reunited if possible. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great because these animal care and control facilities, they can't have full-fledged veterinary services. You know, I'm sure some of these places are smaller and they need to work with other facilities 
to ensure that the animals are serviced and taken care of properly. Mm -hmm. So we are getting close to the end of the show. We still have a whole bunch of information. So we may run through this for you a little bit quicker. So make sure you're get your pencils out and your fast writer because we're fast talkers. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what some, some specifics of certain things that these animal care and control facilities provide. Mm-hmm. So I can't speak to all the facilities that are out there because they all are going to operate slightly differently from each other and are going to have different programs and different ways of operating from each other. But the location that I was at, one of the services that they provided was a barn buddy program. And this is a program that if feral cats were brought into the facility and these cats were deemed to be not necessarily to be domesticated, but were, I guess, not overly feral. Yeah, like a stray cat. Yeah. Then they could be accepted into this barn buddy program. And so what would happen was that people would sign up as potential barn buddies, <laughs> potential farms, I guess, or acreages or whatever that would participate in this program. They would have to have a shelter of some sort, whether it was a barn or something that was going to provide adequate shelter for these cats, because that would be where they were live, would be living, ensuring that they're going to be out providing them with food and water on a daily basis and provide the care that they would need for living outside. And in some cases, some of these cats would get to the point where they could actually be domesticated and brought inside. But in most cases, they would not get to that point. They get put to work. Yeah. On farms. Yeah. Essentially be mousers. Yeah. Rodents population and yeah. So another thing that this center did is that they originally they had one cat per kennel, but they developed the awareness that having so many cats in one area could be really stressful for them. So in order to help reduce the, the stress for the cats by reducing the number of cats that were in the cat holding room, they would open up the two kennels. Now, of course, that means that they can't take as many cats in because of reducing the number of kennels that they're using. They do not allow the public to access the kennel area, which again, which a good thing. yeah, to help reduce their stress. Because I mean, if you've got people constantly looking, I mean, they do that in the humane society. I'm not experienced enough to know to what extent, but yeah, that does create a lot of stress. They have a cat enrichment room that is kind of nice. So it's like the cats don't have to stay in the kennel the whole time. They've got this whole room where they can go and do different things. The different animals are all separated. So you don't have cats together with the dogs. You don't have birds together with the cats or other small animals. They're all in their own rooms. And not all facilities operate this way, but in this particular one, no animals are euthanized unless they have an untreatable illness or injury. Yay! (laughs) You know, the thing with this is that, you know, we've got this idea of kill shelters and no kill shelters, but you have to keep in mind that if an animal operates as a no kill shelter, then that means that there's a limit of animals that they can take in then they're going to end up having to turn away animals. And then those animals are going to end up out on the street. So there's pros and cons to both sides to a certain extent. So let's talk about what happens to animals that 
are surrendered, rescued, or lost. Cats may not be accepted if they are assessed to be healthy, that they are able to care for themselves, and they do not appear to be in any kind of distress. If it's a dog, you know, dogs are assumed to have an owner. And so they will be brought in and scanned and trying to find the owner as quickly as possible. And if not, connecting with a rescue shelter or something to get them adopted. Generally, every effort and avenue is used to locate the owners for the animals that are accepted into the shelter. Good. Most facilities prefer for people to do their own due diligence in finding a lost owner instead of just automatically bringing them in, which again, is because they only have a limited amount of room. So they only want to really have to deal with the animals that there has been no other alternative for them. So two common reasons people choose to surrender their animals tends to be financial challenges and lack of appropriate pet-friendly housing. There is another reason as well, and I found this quite a bit years ago when I first became an animal health technologist, is that people would surrender their animals because of behavior challenges or not doing proper research. And not being willing to put the effort in, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, that's sad. Don't get an animal if you don't do your research. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but this is where I get like really, really, really aggravated. Yeah. You know, first of all, behavior challenges are mostly caused by us, by humans, Mm -hmm. because we did something to them that made them act a certain way. Yeah. Or we're not doing enough and we let them try to figure out their own way. And that's not fair. And Mm -hmm. all of these places that are like, no, no pets, no pets, no pets. You know what? Sorry. I get that it's a little expensive, but there are ways to get around it. You add to the security deposit. I've had to pay a security deposit for my pets. If you're going to have a pet in the house, you add money to the security. So if perchance something happens, you have extra money to take care of any damage that may ensue. Unfortunately, there are places where landlords have had bad experiences with pet owners and they flat out refuse animals no matter what. Oh, I'm sure of it because it can get very expensive. Mm -hmm. But do your background check. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I mean, if I, I don't know. I know there's a lot of things that go into this, but there are ways to get around it. And if you are a responsible pet owner, your animal is not going to do that much damage. Mm-hmm. So all of you people out there that don't give two craps about the place you live in and let your animals do whatever the heck you want, you're the one that's causing all of these animals to be surrendered. So stop it. All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my passionate things that I am just so, oh, I'm hoping that we can change and shift this where people just don't care. Mm -hmm. You need to care about the place you live. You need to care about the animal. You need to care about, actually, you just need to take freaking responsibility for your own actions. With everything, not just. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So (laughs) let's end on a higher note. (laughs) Let's talk about some statistics. Now, these are just estimated national statistics. And the reason why they're estimated is because nobody actually monitors them nationally. They're only monitored on a state by state or province by province basis. So this is going to be in the United States. I didn't actually find any statistics for Canada or other places at this point. We have an awful lot of people in our country. So 
Yeah. <laughs> we probably have a wide pool of information to pull from to get these statistics. <laughs> so approximately 6.3 million companion animals enter U.S. animal shelters nationwide every year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And each year, approximately 920,000 shelter animals are euthanized. Oh my gosh. 390,000 are dogs and 530,000 are cats. We got to stop that. Mm. And that starts with us. Mm -hmm. However, it does say that approximately 4.1 million shelter animals are adopted each year. And it's about equal amounts for dogs and cats. And then about 810,000 animals who enter shelters as strays are returned to their owners. Yay! See, these are good things to end on. (laughs) 710,000 are dogs and 100,000 are cats. Nice. So we're moving in the right direction. Yes, we are. (laughs) But you know what? Just like I said, and I apologize for me getting on my soapboxes. You know where I stand. If you've listened to the show long enough, you know I'm the sassy one that has a lot of opinions. But it always starts with us. Mm -hmm. We are where it starts and ends. We have to make sure that we are not traumatizing these animals and not putting them higher on our list of priorities. They have to be up here with children. Mm. Yeah, I know they're not human, but you know what? They're people too. And they deserve rights and they deserve care and they deserve love. And we humans are the ones that can do that. We make the change. We are the ones that help these animals thrive. Mm -hmm. So now that you know better, do better because they count on us. Mm -hmm. So, and that's all I'm going to say. That's my final thought. (laughs) I've had lots of thoughts this one, but that's my final thought. (laughs) So hopefully this has helped to shift your perspective. If you already, if you had a previously negative perspective on animal shelters, hopefully this has given you a little bit more of a positive light about them and can work with them. Yeah, they're they're trying to do good work. Again, if you have any questions, you have any stories you want to share, any input that you'd like to give us, then please send us an email at theanimalfilespodcast at gmail.com. Join our Facebook group at The Animal Files Community. And you can follow us on, like and follow us on our Facebook page, The Animal Files Official. We also have Twitter and we have Instagram. And we have a website as well. (laughs) Yes, which is theanimalfilespodcast.com. See how easy all that is? Just search for us and you will find us. Come on back and help those animals live better lives because it starts with us. So be kind to them and we will see you right back here. Bye for now. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate, review, and recommend the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want some more great info, be sure to check out www.theanimalfilespodcast.com.